Okay, why? Hmm. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. Oh. I got everybody here. All right. <laughs> all right. I never saw a sideways cross yes, before. I've seen them all over. Okay. Do you want it up higher? It's a fashion statement. No. <laughs> I mean, the cross is sideways. Would you fix it? It's really bothering me. All right. Are we good? We should you want be. me to hold it for you? Should be. All right. That's it's. You know what? It is what it is. Let's just. All right. That's fine. All right. All right, here's my final. I'm going to have to put it. A man decided to write a book about churches around the country. He started by flying to San Francisco and zigzagged east across the states from there. He went to a very large church and began taking pictures. He spotted a golden telephone on a wall and was intrigued by a sign that read $5,000 a minute. Seeking out the pastor, he asked about the phone and the sign. The pastor answered that this golden phone was a direct line to heaven, and if he were to pay the price, he could talk to God. He thanked the pastor and continued on his way. Visiting churches in Seattle, Denver, Minneapolis, Chicago, blah, 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 he found more phones with the same sign. From each pastor, he received the same answer. Finally, he arrived in the southeastern part of the U.S., Upon entering the church, lo and behold, he saw the usual golden phone. But this time the sign read, calls 35 cents. Fascinated, he asked the pastor, Reverend, I have been in cities all across the country, and in each church I have found the very same golden phone. And I have been told it's the direct line to heaven, and that I could talk to God. However... In other churches, the cost was $5,000 a minute. Your sign reads 35 cents. Why is that? The pastor smiled and said, son, you're in Florida now. It's a, it's a local cost. <laughs> okay. I'm glad you laughed because my first thought was, this was before cell phones, <laughs> Okay, so today we begin our study of 2 Timothy. These are the last recorded words of the Apostle Paul. Tradition tells us that shortly after this letter, Paul was taken out on the Ostian Way outside the city of Rome and was beheaded. The letter to Timothy was written at a time when Paul was imprisoned for the cause of Christ. There is a vast difference in atmosphere between this and his first letter to Timothy. That letter was written at the, the time Luke describes in the last paragraph of the book of Acts when he tells us that Paul dwelt in his own hired house in Rome. Though chained to a Roman guard, Paul nevertheless had a good deal of freedom to move around the house. He could invite friends in to see him. He held meetings. He had companions who lived with him. And he had a hopeful sense that he would be released. But in this second letter, Everything is different. The atmosphere seems to be much more gloomy and dark and small wonder. This second letter was probably written about four to six years after the first one. Paul was around 66 and Timothy 36. As best as scholars can piece together, 
Paul seems to have been released from his first imprisonment and resumed his travels about the Roman Empire, taking Titus and Timothy with him. He went to Crete where he left Titus to set things in order with the new church growing there. He went to Ephesus again and there he left Timothy to work with that church. He went to Macedonia, visited Nicopolis, Crete, Miletus, and some believe he may have even gone as far as Spain. Suddenly, in the midst of this freedom, he is arrested once again. In 64 AD, Nero, who was an insane madman, torched the city of Rome so that he could circumvent the Senate, who opposed his illustrious plan to tear down a third of the city in order to build an elaborate series of palaces. Not wanting to bear the public shame and the public wrath for what he had done, Nero pushed it off on this group called Christians and blamed them for the burning of Rome. It's not surprising that an avalanche of animosity broke out against the believers in Jesus Christ, and this hatred radiated out of Rome <coughs> excuse me, and permeated the entire Roman Empire. Christians were despised throughout the empire and began to be subjected to bitter persecution. They were burned as living torches to light the emperor's social gatherings. They were thrown to lions. They were killed by gladiators. They were accused of being cannibals because they talked about eating the body and blood of Christ. And they were said to be revolutionaries because they denied the ultimate authority of Caesar and said that Jesus was Lord. Paul was the leading spokesman of the Christian faith among the Gentiles. He was arrested and taken back to Rome and incarcerated <coughs> in the dungeon of the Mamertine prison. What, remi what remains of the Mamertine prison is a dungeon in the ground, literally a circular pit about 30 feet in diameter, with a hole at the top a little bigger than a manhole. That was the place of incarceration for the criminals at the time of the Apostle Paul. The pit had a stone floor and stone walls in the shape of a circle. Against one section of that pit was a door that was able to be pulled up and then dropped back into place. The door was for execution purposes. It was common to place prisoners, dropping them through the hole into the dungeon up to 30 to 35 at a time. In order to make room for the next group of criminals, the door would be pulled open and running alongside this cell was, a, was the city sewage system of Rome. As the door was pulled open, the dungeon would fill with sewage, drown all of the prisoners and wash them back out. The door would be shut, the dungeon drained, and it was ready for more prisoners. Can you imagine? No sanitation no light, jammed with 30 bitter, angry criminals awaiting execution. Now, as a Roman citizen, Paul couldn't be crucified, and I guess he couldn't be drowned in sewage either because he was beheaded. What an unjust reward for an innocent man. Not just an innocent man, but a man who brought the good news of salvation to these very people who took his life. This is the scene in which we find the Apostle Paul sitting in this dungeon in the most difficult incarceration of his life. He's in chains, knowing he is near to his execution. Death is imminent. 
and he has been deserted by all but Luke. And while in that dungeon experiencing both physical and emotional pain, he sets out to write the last letter he ever wrote to his son in the faith. This letter is from Paul, chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I have been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised to, through faith in Christ Jesus. I am writing to Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you mercy, grace, and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you, the God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again, for I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we are together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I know that same faith continues strong in you. Verses 1 through 5. Paul is a motivator, isn't he? And he motivates Timothy from a position of authority. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. This carries weight. He, has, he was chosen by Christ, sent by Christ, stood in the place of Christ, spoke the word of Christ. The things he has to say to Timothy aren't suggestions, they're commands, given through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by the sovereign will of God. And then in verse 2, to Timothy, my beloved son, there's the intimacy, the love that has bonded them together in Christ. There is a deep spiritual bond, a love like a father and a son between Paul and Timothy. But Paul is still the one who speaks the word of God. This letter is loaded with directives. Kindle afresh the gift of God. Do not be ashamed of the Lord. Retain the standard. Guard the treasure, be strong, and trust to faithful men. Suffer hardship, remember Jesus Christ. Remind them, solemnly charge them, be diligent, avoid worldly empty chatter, flee youthful lust, refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, continue in the things you've learned. Preach the word, be ready, reprove, rebuke, exhort, be sober in all things. Makes me tired and a bit overwhelmed <laughs> to just read all of those. But Paul isn't just dishing out commands. His unselfish concern for, for Timothy shines forth in his wish for him. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Paul wants the very, very best for Timothy. Grace, God's undeserved favor, love, and forgiveness, so that he can be free from sin and able to live and serve a holy God. Mercy, God's undeserved compassion, so that he can be free from the misery that sin creates. Peace, harmony, agreement, reconciliation to rule his life. No matter how, how dark it may look, there is a way through the trial. Jesus himself is with us. He's not only going through the trial with us, but he is totally in control of it, and it is for our good and for God's glory. By the way, ladies, are you under the impression that as a Christian, your life should be a bed of roses, free of trials? 
Is it your natural expectation that every day ought to be fun and full of delight with nothing going wrong? Jesus loves you. He wants only the best for you, and he wants to give you the desires of your heart, right? So no hardships, because who in their right mind desires that? Well, as you all know, that's totally unrealistic. In a fallen world, the exact opposite is true. Every day ought to be nothing but disaster and sheer chaos. Every day, every moment ought to be filled with malice, hatred, viciousness, and betrayal. The fact that those, that those things only come infrequently into our lives is due to the mercies of God. We ought to expect nothing but the most extreme hardships, but actually we are given hours and days, sometimes even weeks and months of joy, blessing, and peace. Praise the Lord. Okay, so back to Paul and Timothy. Paul goes on to thank God for Timothy. He literally says, Timothy, when I think of you, I have joy in God. Wouldn't you want someone to say that about you? Paul truly appreciates Timothy and the work of the Lord in his life. He's in that filthy, stinking dungeon thinking about Timothy. He's lonely without him, but he's not bitter or angry. He's thanking God, and he constantly remembers him. He also assures Timothy that his conscience is clear, or rather cleansed. Paul acknowledges that there may have been many things which he may have done wrong, but God dealt with them. He's getting ready to die a criminal's death, but he's not in prison because of some sinful act he's committed. He has a clean conscience and continues to serve God, just like all those who faithfully served the Lord in the past. And what is he doing? He's constantly praying for Timothy day and night. The, weak, the Greek word used for prayer here is deesis and means to petition or to plead to God on someone's behalf. Not only is he continually pleading to God for Timothy, but he is longing to see him. The word for longing is epipotheo and means that Paul has a strong desire, a yearning to see Timothy. It's a very intense word in the Greek. Paul remembers that the last time they were together, Timothy wept. These two men loved each other and sorrowed at the thought of being apart. Paul tells Timothy that he will be filled with joy if he can see him again. Finally, Paul affirms Timothy's faith. He remembers the sincere faith that he knows Timothy has that first dwelt in his grandmother and his mother. The word for sincere, anupokritos, means without hypocrisy. Paul knew Timothy's faith was the real thing. Well, ladies, we've only covered five verses, and already Paul has established his authority as God's apostle, told Timothy that he has his very best interests at heart, that he appreciates him and thanks the Lord for him, that he prays for him continually, and that he is absolutely sure that Timothy's faith is sincere. Way to set up a baton pass, Paul. Paul knows that he's at the end of his own life and ministry, but the ministry must go on, and he wants Timothy to take the baton and carry on the race. This is why I remind you to fan into flames 
the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Verses 6 and 7. I think most of us would agree that Paul possessed a forceful personality, and he did not have a problem with confrontation. Well, Timothy was no Paul. He doesn't have the strength of character, boldness, and, and uh, courage that his mentor had. Paul had a burden that Timothy finds strength within himself from the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. He knew Timothy's weaknesses. In 1 Corinthians 16.10, he wrote to the Corinthian church, <clears throat> Now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work. That could be an insight into the fact that Timothy could be intimidated when things were said against him. Timothy has to carry on. <clears throat> and it may well be that Timothy could also be imprisoned and lose his life for the cause of Christ. Paul reminds him that because he knows Timothy is a true believer, he knows that he has a gift from God and he needs to use it. He's reminding Timothy to get the fire going again and fan the flames and keep it alive. He has denying, divine enablement to serve the Lord. Preaching, teaching, leading, doing the work of, a, of an evangelist all combined to be his gift. Paul knows Timothy has the gift. He mentions the laying on of hands to affirm that he knows what his gift is and he's obligated to use that gift. God didn't give Timothy gifts to be used in advance, to advance his kingdom and then equip him with cowardice that would literally negate the gift. Rather, he gave him power, love, and discipline in order to operate that gift. The same is true of us. Any hesitation, lack of boldness, being ashamed to speak for the Lord or live for the Lord or serve the Lord simply indicates that we're not using our spiritual resources. Any weakness on our part is strictly just not cashing our check because the resources are in our spiritual bank. We're just not drawing them. Verse 7 states that God has given us past tense already in the bank, power, love, and discipline. When you became a believer, you received the Holy Spirit. And Jesus says in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. When you became a believer, you received a divine capacity to love. Romans 5.5 5 says, He has given us the, us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And when you were saved, you received the Holy Spirit who brings with him his fruit, love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and self-control which is another word for discipline. These divine resources are available to us. Every single lady in this room who is a believer has spiritual gifts and the resources to apply those gifts. We have to be willing to access them and put them to use for God's glory. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord and don't, <clears throat> and don't be ashamed of me either even though I'm in prison for him, with the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news.
verse 8. There was a serious and potentially deadly stigma in being identified with Christ in Timothy's society where Christians were being thrown in jail and killed. Jesus was nothing more than a crucified criminal and Christians were rebellious insurrectionists who had burned Rome. The cross to the Jew was a stumbling block and an offense to the Gentile. It was stupidity. Paul tells Timothy to never be ashamed about our Lord, personal possession. He belongs to both of them. And then he adds, or of me, a prisoner. Since Paul was the leading spokesman for Christ, anyone who identified with Paul was in the same danger that Paul was in. He exhorts Timothy to be ready to suffer. Join with me in suffering, literally to suffer evil together or to take a share of evil treatment along with him. Anybody who names the name of Christ is going to experience it. Expect suffering because it goes with the territory and you're not alone in your suffering. For God saved us and called us to live a holy life. He did this not because we deserved it, but because that was his plan from before the beginning of time, to show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now he has made all of this plain to us by the, by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news, verses 9 and 10. As I'm sure you saw while you were doing your questions, what we have here is a mini doctrine of salvation. Paul is telling Timothy to remember his God, the God who saved him. The God who can save you is the God who can hold you. Anything we ever have suffered at the hands of evil men, we suffer under the power of God who allows it, who can overpower it at any time. Now all glory to God who is able to keep you from falling and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. Jude 24. <clears throat> if he saved us from our sinfulness, and if he by his power not only saved us, but made us holy, and he did all of that without our help, then we don't have to be worried about preserving ourselves while ministering for him. The one who saved us without our help is also able to keep us without our help. How powerful is God? God is so powerful that he saved us. God is so powerful, he made us holy. He did it without our help. He's so powerful that he decided to do it and be gracious to us and set it in place before the beginning of time. God is so powerful that he took the plan he had made and brought it to reality by bringing Jesus through the grave and out the other side. He is so powerful that he abolished death and he revealed the, the picture of life and immortality through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. That is why I am suffering here in prison, but I am not ashamed of it, 
for I know the one in whom I trust, and I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. <coughs> Verses 11 and 12. Paul has already gone down the path that Timothy will follow. He has been called as Timothy has been called. He understands what Timothy is up against. Paul didn't choose to be a preacher. God chose him in the same way Timothy was chosen. He has a calling, a duty to preach the gospel, and that's why he's suffering in prison. He suffers because he preaches truth. He preaches truth because he can't not preach it. Why? Because he knows the Lord firsthand and personally. His faith is a fully settled faith in the one he, ha he has personally experienced. He is literally saying, I continue to believe in the one I have already believed in. Notice that he doesn't say what I have believed, but whom I have believed. What sustained him in suffering wasn't his theology, it was his God. Paul trusts his security, and his security is the Lord himself. Nothing can take him out of the hand of God. Hold on to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learned from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us. Carefully guard the precious truth that has been entrusted to you. Verses 13 and 14. Paul just talked about his life being entrusted to God, and now he talks about God entrusting the truth to Timothy. What's he talking about? Sound doctrine. To hold firmly, to grasp the standard. The word in the Greek means the structure or the model, the pattern of sound words. Wholesome, life-giving words. The truth. Paul is telling Timothy to guard the truth. Be committed to the proper interpretation of scripture. The proper outline of the truth that produces spiritual growth. This isn't just any truth, any old doctrine. It's the truth shaped by the faith and love that you have in Jesus. Paul taught Timothy the pattern of faithful teaching, but it's not Paul's pattern. It's the Lord's pattern. This is precious. Keep it safe. Preserve it from corruption or destruction. Paul sees Timothy as a defender of the faith. Through the Holy Spirit that indwells Timothy as a believer in Christ, he is to guard the paratheke, the treasure, the precious truth that has been entrusted to him. The truth is the word of God. The deposit of your life with God is secure. How secure is a deposit of God's word in you? God has entrusted his word to you, to me, this is the most solemn responsibility that we have in our lives. We are to be guardians of the truth of scripture. We aren't to put our own ideas in the place of the word. <coughs> Suppose you were building a house and you hired a man to do the work. You hand him the blueprints and tell him to use them to build your house. Well, he ignores the plans and proceeds to do his own thing. He has better ideas after all. 
Well, it wouldn't be long if he was working for me that he would be out of a job. <laughs> he might attempt to argue with you, insisting that his ways are better than yours, but he didn't follow the blueprints. He didn't do what you wanted. You wouldn't care what he thought. You hired him to build your house according to the plans you gave him. Isn't it the same when we are working for the Lord? The mature Christian is instructed out of the word of God. It doesn't matter what you believe or how sincere you are in your beliefs. If you can't back up what you think or what you believe with God's word, then you're wrong. No matter how hard we try, we can never outthink God. There are no what-ifs. Everything of value that you need to live your life is in the Bible. The glory of Christianity is that it is the knowledge, biblical knowledge, that can set us free from the lies that the world in its blindness is following to its own destruction. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phygelus and Hermogenes. Verse 15. Paul is telling Timothy something he already knows. Ephesus was the leading city in Asia Minor where Timothy had been ministering for several years. He was aware that when Paul was taken prisoner and the persecution came against the Christians, that all those people who are in the area of Asia didn't want to associate with Paul or be identified with him. That's why he told Timothy not to be ashamed of the Lord or of me, his prisoner. Being identified with Paul was a dead giveaway about what you believed. What happened in Asia Minor was many of the teachers who had gone along with Paul as soon as he was arrested shut their mouths and melted away. They were trying to protect themselves and so deserted Paul. He names two of them, Phygelus and Hermogenes. We don't know anything about them, but Paul didn't sweep this betrayal under the rug. He tells the whole world for every generation to come that these two guys were well-known defectors. How would you like to be reminded or remembered in this manner for the rest of time? Did these two men turn from the faith or like Peter did with Christ, deny their mentor to save themselves from this fate? Scripture doesn't really tell us. What a disappointment these two were, though. Every, even repentance wouldn't bring back the past. They had to live with the consequences of their decision for the rest of their lives. May the Lord show special kindness to Onesiphorus and all his family because he often visited and encouraged me. He was never ashamed of me because I was in chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus, verses 16 through 18. Paul mentions someone else Timothy knows, Onesiphorus, and his entire household were godly people. They weren't ashamed of Paul, and he prays that in that day, when they come face to face with their Lord, that he'll reward them. Onesiphorus means bringer of help. He was a man who definitely lived up to his name. When he was in Rome, he sought and found Paul. He kept looking until he found him with no thought to himself. He ministered to Paul and refreshed his spirit. 
To befriend an enemy of Cæsar was to put one's own life in danger. That's why so many had turned away from Paul. They feared for their lives. But not Onesiphorus. He stood as a shining beacon for Christ in that dreary, lonely time in Paul's life. And this wasn't an unusual way for him to act. His was a life of service, of ministry for the Lord. Paul reminds Timothy of how helpful Onesiphorus has been in Ephesus. The Christian life is one of choices, ladies. Paul clearly divides the two camps, if you will, in these final verses of chapter 1. Courage is demanded of any servant of God. Moral courage, but sometimes even physical courage. We're very blessed in the USA. We're not called to put our lives on the line to follow Christ. However, our society is becoming more and more intolerant of Christian beliefs. It wasn't this way only a few years ago. I'm really astounded by how far our country has gone in such a short time. We're called to be ready to suffer. But how do we do that? How do we get ready? Well, the good news is that you don't have to practice bleeding or talk someone into hooking you up to some torture device. The way to be prepared for suffering is to get to know more and more and yet more about Jesus Christ. Remember that he suffered. Study his attitude towards suffering and the attitudes of those faithful who have gone before us and focus on the gospel. We have the precious gift of God's word. Spend time studying it and applying its principles to your life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the Apostle Paul, for the godly model he is for us in our Christian walk. Give us that spirit, Lord, of wanting to pass on the baton to another generation, and thank you for the privilege of doing that. Help us to be obedient to all that you would have us do, Lord, in order to guard the truth of your word and to cultivate it in the hearts of others. And Lord, we thank you for your redeeming love. Your love drew us into your family and gave us a gift to use for ministry. Help us to use what you've given us for your glory and for the furthering of your kingdom. Help us to be bold and to keep our eyes on you and not on men. Help us to be confident that what we have committed into your care is safe until the day we see you. Jesus our Lord. Amen.